darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Thelema. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind, to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. This is the follow-up to my discussion with Edward Mason on the subject of color and its uses in magic. We'll drift into conversation on various tangential subjects about magical practice, people making their own tarot decks, and whether a magician should keep their status and practices on the down low. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Color and image really were key tools that I think Crowley wanted to employ to say here is something that people will be able to pick up on in the future. So, yeah, the the Thoth deck is very explosive. It's got everything in there. All of the secret stuff is visually encoded. Um, the lover's card encodes a lot of the uh, concepts of sex magic and the Gnostic mass. Um, other cards imply this so in various ways. It's there, and the right person would come along and be able to use that and uh, get things moving. I have heard, I've, I have spoken to people who prefer the older decks for the reason of their simplicity uh, and the, the fact that they have less going on, less explosive imagery and that sort of thing as well. I suppose it's the type of thing you could, it depends on what you're using the card for at the given time. You could argue for uh, potentially going back to the Rider Waite deck. Um, I don't know if you'd go as far as to uh, get the same things out of like an H.R. Geiger deck, for instance. <laughs> that might be a little, uh, I don't think there'd be any different colors in that one, actually. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, there's so many, there's hundreds of decks literally out there now. I saw a figure recently and thought, my gosh, that, that's an awful lot of artistic <laughs> productive time put into, although I think it's that same impulse of trying to record experiences, visionary realizations, and um, revelatory information, if you want to use that term, in imagery. Some people can write, others can paint and draw, and it's just another way of putting the mysteries out there as far as people have understood them. My problem with all of the other decks is that I would acknowledge Paul Case as probably, even though he disclaimed the term, an exempt adept, <clears throat> Crowley definitely a magus. Um, these are very high initiates with an enormous amount of understanding of what they're doing. The fact that you have got to the equivalent of Yesod on the tree of life in, in serious work and had a bunch of realizations does not, I respectfully suggest, make you ready to produce a tarot deck, even if it's got some really cool stuff on it. 
that isn't going to be as helpful as the stuff produced by the initiates. Now, I do know this is a, a conversation about color rather than the tarot specifically, um, but do you feel that there would be value for the individual themselves in going through the process of making their own tarot deck, even if it's not for the purposes of put, giving it out to other people or selling it or whatnot? There's a great deal of value provided you have the ability. Um, I mentioned coloring my own trees of life because you know, I painstakingly drew the connecting lines and used a toonie to draw circles on a piece of paper. And then I've only got to fill in, in most cases, one color. Provided I could stay within that circular line, the job was done. I would never dream of trying to design a tarot deck on my own and paint a tarot deck on my own. Um, and somewhere Crowley remarks that the, the original tarot was designed by a committee of exempt adepts. You need to be at that level before you can truly come up with something that's comprehensive because the exempt adept is working in Chesed, which is a kind of summation of everything below the abyss, good and bad. The whole It's all about recollection. It's all about bringing everything back for review <clears throat> so that you can, when the day comes, you know, take the oath of the abyss and become a babe of the abyss and put everything of yourself into the abyss and let it go because you know what everything is. Um, maybe I should therefore say, no, I don't think it's a good <laughs> idea at all. I mean, but have some fun. You'll learn a lot. You'll teach yourself something, but never take your own tarot deck as definitive. Yeah, I guess it's a matter of not taking yourself too seriously so that you can recognize that, sure, this might be what you're doing right now, but a few years down the road, you might have a deeper understanding of what all these things are that'll be different from what your current understanding is. And if you've not done your tarot deck right, then you are locked into that particular perspective. If you did a good job, you'll look at it and say, well, I mean, that hanged man, I mean, what did I, what was I thinking when I put that snake around the guy's waist? Um, mm. It seemed like a cool idea at the time. It was an idea in my head. It had no relevance to the true significance of the, what happens on that path, what happens within that card. I mean, the, you do need to take yourself seriously. You also need to be able to toss your own seriousness in the trash can hmm. at any given moment in the mysteries. Um, I know as I went through the, the training process that I have been through, there'd be times when I'd be doing something for literally years in some cases. And one day I think, you know what, this doesn't work. I'd have to re-educate my brain, which is so used to going in a particular groove that it didn't want to change the wording. It was very unhappy about the wording. It would tell me that everything was wrong, but that's how the mysteries work. And if you do a good tarot deck, then you would teach you to go past your own realizations into new unknown territory. If you've done a bad job or a partial job, which is inevitable when you're only educated to a certain point in the whole business, you could just get stuck because you really love that tarot deck you did when you were 10 years younger. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess bringing it back around to the idea of uh, color, 
Uh, there's also another Golden Dawn innovation was bringing a lot of color into the Enochian system as well with the uh, the tables and whatnot. Definitely, that was a thing. Um, in the Golden Dawn, the Second Order made much more use of color because in the First Order, really, that was preliminary training. It was... Um, getting some aspects of personality and ego out of the way so that true magical power could operate. But there wasn't a great deal of magical activity done by most of the First Order people in the Golden Dawn. Crowley was an exception to that. He was already, he was there before he started in a way. Um, whereas once you were put into that vault of theirs in Clipstone Street in London, um, the building's gone now, very sadly. You were suddenly confronted with this seven-paneled interior with, I think, 10 panels on each of the seven panels. So you've got 70 of these things. The whole color system was there virtually, um, you know, frying your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And you were then going to be working a lot more with new levels of stuff, such as with the Enochian system and the colors uh, that uh, are attributed to the, the tablets and other aspects of it. So really color tended to be a second order thing in the original Golden Dawn system, where people in the first order were simply introduced to color and had it explained to them. They weren't really working it. What you also did in the second order depending on, on your budget and personal wealth, you might end up acquiring a whole wardrobe of colored robes. Mm. Um, it reminds me of my very first teacher, a guy called Jamie Perry in Toronto, who said, you know, the first thing you need to understand is when you become a magician, you go shopping. <laughs> and even if you're not buying colored robes, you just need to get candle holders and wood for wands and all of that stuff, you need an altar, and so on and so on and so on. There's a lot of material acquisition acquired mm. in basic magic, and the material acquisitions are much better when they are painted and colored. They're then assigned to the, the energy that you want to draw in and that you want to work with. And that was a big thing for the Golden Dawn in the Second Order. They went to town on all of that. So when you walked into a temple that had a blue altar cloth and you were wearing a blue robe and there was some blue other stuff around, then, you know, you knew you were in Chesed and you were going to do a working of Jupiter and so on. I, I heard it said that uh, the Golden Dawn color system uh, can be a little gaudy and overdone for some people's tastes, and I've heard it argued that uh, going for something a little bit closer to what maybe uh, Dee and Kelly might have been working with in the original Enochian system might be more to their taste. Some more muted tones, um, as you were saying, like they didn't have the, uh, the technology involved with a lot of the really bright and distinct colors that we have since then but i suppose that's also you could make the argument that maybe those bright new colors come with the new aeon it is a case of chacunson grimoire you know whatever you need to do to make you things work for yourself 
then that is what you will, will do. <clears throat> I mentioned in a previous talk where I was talking about my own difficulties with visualization. I had to develop some workarounds and that became part of my methodology, just focusing on certain aspects of the ritual to compensate for a rather weak um, image. And once I got into that, then the magic began to, to, to work for me. Um, by all means, do that. But remember, the Golden Dawn is a system that has been worked on and worked out now for 140 years or more. There's an enormous deposit of this in the, um, the astral world, the collective unconscious, whatever term you like to use, the etheric planes. And it's easy to call on. You, I think you need to start there and every serious adept is going to change some stuff for themselves. I haven't changed any colors, but my attribution of some of the Egyptian gods has always been different to what the Golden Dawn or Crowley had, just because of how I encountered them over the years mm. and thought this one doesn't belong there, it belongs here and so on. Uh, I wouldn't try teaching that it just happens to have arisen from my own personal experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm always a great believer in, look, teach the system and learn the system. And when you've learned the system, teach that system. Then when you've got more advanced students, you can say, well, I don't actually do that. And here's my reason. Mm -hmm. uh, magic is such an intimately personal thing. By definition, you're doing your own will, your own realization. You are endeavoring to contact the vibration, the universe, the whatever term you'd like to use that is your own holy guardian angel, that is your own approach to infinite divinity. It can't, it has to be done very individually. As with the AA system, where there's a, you become a probationer, you go through the neophyte ritual, you go through the zealotor ritual, and well, now you're on your own. Make your own ritual. That's part of the job. All the way up through five, six, and if you make it as far as the abyss, you know, same thing again. Crowley gives a lot of clues, but um, that's your model. It's not your absolute um, uniform code that you must pursue all the way. So yeah, by all means, um, try changing the colors, uh, tone them down if you find that it's distracting or just not helping you focus on what you want in your ritual, but at least know the system before you abandon it. It's very much like what Crowley says uh, about you, you can go beyond the rules, but first you have to absorb the rules and, and embody the rules so that you know what you're going beyond. It's a paradox in his writing. He is so prescriptive. He has done so many papers, so many instructions. <clears throat> his writing can be almost dogmatic at times, but he was mostly concerned with people avoiding mistakes that he'd seen them do, blundering into one particular obsession that they shouldn't get stuck on. Um, I mean, his, his taunting of A.E. weight really came about because he felt the weight was really a mystic, not a magician. Mm -hmm. And you can't, a, a, whether a mystic can really teach magicians is an arguable point because there are just a different set of uh, almost aggressive dynamics necessary for good magic. 
Mysticism can, is less intense most of the time and um, doesn't run the same risks, except that you can get stuck in benign fog. And I think that's what he felt had happened with weight. Uh, he does. He, he does actually uh, also criticize the uh, or directly attack the uh, the implication that magic is dangerous, which I think uh, Wait claimed as compared to mysticism. Uh, there's a in the Equinox somewhere. There's a, a little thing that Crowley writes about the dangers of mysticism, where he's talking about the uh, the. I think it's basically the fact that it's mostly uh, mysticism can be. It seems like the safer path, but it's actually it can be quite dangerous in terms of especially like ego issues and whatnot. Yes, but you, you I you meet people who are following some of the new age paths and they will tell you I'm trying to dissolve my ego, which is the most absurd statement anyone could possibly make. Your ego is not going to destroy itself, nor do you need to get rid of it. You just need to change the relationship with the ego and what its function is. It's your interface with the world. It's the screen on your computer. It isn't all the processing capability inside the thing. Mm-hmm. Magic, well, magic is dangerous when you're nervous and scared. I mean, not for beginners. Usually, usually they have a, something that seriously impresses them when they get some kind of result. But if you approach magic, as if it is dangerous, then I think that's far riskier than saying, I will stride forth. And if this goes kind of weird, I've got to do a lot of banishing over the next two days. That particularly applies to Enochian. Um, Paul Case says he knew 25 cases of people who'd suffered psychological or physical illness, but he never tells you who they were. (laughs) And they must have been adepts of the system in order to be working with the Enochian stuff. I'm not sure he had encountered that many adepts. Um, And I think he did some harm by putting that out, simply saying this system is dangerous. It's very highly interactive. You have to learn to deal with something rather different to what you get with regular sephirotic or planetary or zodiacal magic. But is it going to obsess you and get you, you know, taken over by demonic forces? I've never met anyone to whom that happened. I've met people who had a bad day or two. I've, I've done weird things and thought for the next four days that I was distracted and low on energy and stuff like that. Then I'm back to normal again. Um, I don't believe I have gone completely crazy. Um, if I have, I've evaded the psychiatric establishment very effectively, so the magic's working. And I haven't felt that it's done. magic has done anything but um, actually keep me healthier physically than a lot of people of my own age. Well, you know, everybody takes for granted how dangerous cars are, you know? Yes. It's like they're killing people constantly, but we pretend like it's everything's fine. <laughs> like It's easy enough to ignore all the dangers of that and recognize the fact that yeah, there are dangers. You just have to be sensible about it. I think people can often be scared by those who face the unknown and are used to it. Um, We tend to valorize mountain climbers and people with extreme sports, even if we think they might be a bit crazy, but we don't see them as evil. 
Whereas when somebody is going into areas of understanding that are beyond the norms, for enormous numbers of people, that's very frightening. I mean, so many people, I think, adopt a religion or a spiritual perspective as a shield against what we can call God, for want of a better term. It keeps God out <laughs> rather than being something that is driven by God having entered in. So when you meet somebody who says, well, you know, I, I was really scared of what was going to happen and I kept on pushing through and then I had a period of dryness and then I had a period where I felt I was completely lost and eventually I reached a point where I knew what I was doing again. Um, that can be very frightening to people who do not want to make such a journey in their lives. So it's why occultism still needs to maintain a veil around its operations. People are not going to understand. And inevitably you come up against things that are difficult to encompass. One of the things I've been doing recently is rereading the Red Book, that great big tome with Jung's mm -hmm. explorations of what came up when he just dropped his conscious defenses. And he is he comes to the conviction that you cannot have God without so-called Satan involved. God has to be the totality. He couldn't maintain what he'd been taught by his father, the pastor in the Swiss village, that God is all good and the devil is all bad. Hmm. He, he felt that was unworkable. But how do you explain that? And even in his own published psychiatric works, that demonic force becomes the shadow. It's, it's kind of smoothed out for the public, even in his seven sermons to the dead. Um, when you see the first draft of that and the material that led to it, and then you look at the published version, some of the rough edges were just smoothed down to make them conform with older Gnostic texts and stuff. Just you know, so hmm. there was less chance of, in quotes, misunderstanding. Whereas Jung was a man who really, I think, was as much of an adept as many magicians that we have now. It's interesting how how the uh, that seems to have been a, a regular feature of anything like religion or spirituality, especially when it comes to uh, in relation to the Christian Church. Like going, I was just reading about Miguel Molinos. And his uh, the problems surrounding his writings, uh, and and the problems that the church took with it, with uh, the idea of um, uh, that approaching of God versus uh, meditation, as he would call it. Yeah, yeah. Molinos ended up in the uh, Inquisition's prison for many years. You're told in a a that you should proclaim your affiliation, you know, all over the place. Um, I would suggest that you need to proclaim your affiliation selectively. It, it may not help you in certain situations. You might want to be wise and avoid certain groups of people, certain factions and so on. A friend I have here in Mexico, he's a paradox to me. He's a gay man who is a Christian. He is also a big Donald Trump fan and is always telling me about the steel and you know, Trump did amazing things and Biden is terrible and he's destroying the world. 
Um, and I told him, you know, I'm into hermeticism. I didn't get too much into it because I realized he had no idea of the different categories of hermetic uh, mm-hmm. practice. Um, and his Christian side wants to be tolerant and accepting. And I think he's just shut the information out. He has never asked me a single question mm-hmm. of volunteering enormous amounts of information from his own side. Uh, again, I think if God is reality, then religion is a very important way of keeping that reality out of your life and going into a particular bubble where there's always the threat of ending up in hell, but you can just keep praying the daylights out of things until you expire and hopefully, you know, you made it through. A magician is trying to get past the idea of fear. I think Molinos had got past the idea of real fear same as Giordano Bruno, who in you know, 1600 was burned at the stake, um, and a bunch of other people who were incautious. They thought that they were protected by their own fearlessness. Um, it's always that balance that you have to have. You are walking a tightrope in certain circumstances when you are an occultist. And it's safer to keep yourself and all of your multicolored charts and tree of li- trees of life in a cupboard in the you know, hidden at the back of the drawer, just in case the wrong people come to visit. <laughs> I think actually that that reminds me of uh, around ten or so years ago, talking to somebody in the community who. Uh, um, was very much downplaying the idea of secrecy uh, in terms of that kind of thing, like being keeping yourself protected and, you know, the worry about uh, people's bigotry or, you know, uh, mob mentality or anything like that. And then I, they were playing it like, well, that's, you know, nowadays you don't have to worry about that kind of thing. Um, and then flash forward over the past interceding 10 years, it feels like, uh, yeah, you very much have to be careful about, you know, <laughs> how you're perceived by who. So it is, It is. Uh, I mean, certainly you can be open uh, about who you are and what you believe in and what you're doing and that sort of thing, but uh, you do have to be tactful at the same time and not just, you know, foolhardy. Yeah, and you mentioned the word tact, and I think one thing is if you're going to discuss what you actually believe with somebody you need the tact to recognize that this is something well outside their world. Mm-hmm. Don't pull them into something that they already have believe is scary as hell. Um, so that's, that's a factor. Secrecy versus being public, it's a little too late to go reverse everything. I mean, I've given public lectures in Toronto and other cities. I've done published stuff online under my own name. Um, I'm doing these talks. You know, I, I'm out there. So if they really start coming for the occultists, I'm, I'm on the, the arrest list. I don't think it's that going to be that bad. It's just more a thing of this, this incomprehension that people have. Occultism takes you to points where, like Jung, you start realizing that a god that does not have a terrifying and destructive side to it is not actually God. It's just something you've produced for your own uh, comfort. You know, as some people call it the sky fairy. Hmm. Um, you're going to be misunderstood and just 
blandly proclaiming your affiliation with Thelema, with magic, with Crowley, whatever, you're going outside of people's ability to process information. That I do not see as an intelligent uh, thing to do. So I, I do believe always in intelligence, in discrimination, which is the virtue of Malkuth, the first of the Sefiroth. Remember that there are times when you can explain, well, you know, basically sex magic is a way of transcending regular conventional morality, is something that somebody will nod at and say, yeah, I think I know what you mean. And there are certain circumstances where that is going to cause all kinds of problems. And yes, you do have to leave your job or move out of the neighborhood. Be sensible. It is. I, I, every time I read Crowley's own words, like reading the confessions, for instance, um, you get such a different sort of take on things than if you're reading somebody talking about Crowley. Because the way that people talk about Crowley is always in that very kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, scandalous kind of way. There's always a, some level of scandal about it and that sort of thing. But when you read his own words, I feel like you can get a, a take on what the actual reality of things probably was in a lot of cases. And you can understand why people like to drum up a lot more of the drama and the scandal as much you know, you know, as much as they love hearing about it in the media, in the news, and, and on TV, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, Crowley is still a threatening figure, um, sixty odd, eighty, no, seventy years after his death. Um, it's quite surprising. One of the strangest conversations I ever had here in Mexico was with a friend of mine who was a student of Chogyam Trungpa, the the Dzogchen uh, Vajrayana teacher, who was. He and Crowley could have just had a glorious drinking session together because <laughs> both of them were, were tantrists in their different ways and understood that you have to go past all conceptions of right and wrong to get at the truth. This guy had come across some Christian, and I you put that word in quotes, videos by a guy called Schnobelen who comes up with extraordinary um, Gothic fictions about Thelema, Crowley, and I don't think he mentions Kenneth Grant, but he tries to combine the two. And this guy was saying, well, your, your system is really destructive and it's all about pedophilia. And of course, we know that pedophilia is one of the, the Christian obsessions in this time. Um, and I kept thinking, you're a guy who's done all those meditations on these wrathful deities who, while they are in union with their consort, They've got these horrible faces with fangs sticking out and they're drinking blood from a skull. Um, <laughs> and you're telling me that my stuff is on the dark side, but you know that your stuff is symbolic. You're trying to deal with wrath, with greed, with all of the undesirable stuff in life. What do you think we're doing? We're not just doing this to wallow in filth. It hmm. is about trying to get to a transcendent state that actually has a beneficial effect on humanity's ability to manage its own affairs and to live sanely and maybe not happily, but purposefully in the world. Well, that's really great. We've gone a little bit far afield from just the subject of color, but this has been a really great conversation. I've really enjoyed this. So uh, thanks as usual. Yeah, it's interesting. We've gone a long way from color. Um, but I think the whole idea of working with the colors is they do suggest and they do point in 
greater directions. They do start the conversation. That's why its color is used so extensively in the system. Mm -hmm. It sends a little knock to the back of the head and says, look at this, go here, explore this, um, stretch your mind a little bit on that. So yeah, we've gone off topic, and yet I think that's the whole point of the topic. That's a very good point. Yeah, I like that. And I think that's why it's so easy to dismiss the idea of color as, oh, yeah, there's colors, you know, that's in 777, that's fine. But, I've got the list somewhere in a book. Don't, I've, got, in fact, I've got three <laughs> books with the list in. What else do I need? And I can look it up online. Yeah, but if you carry those colors in your head, sometimes you realize, especially the, the neglected ones in the, the Yetzeratic scale, the Emperor scale, um, the stuff there, there's information. And it will tell you something about how your, your response to the color it will tell you something about your relationship to the world. And it's a small piece of information about what it is you're trying to accomplish, what one aspect of your true will is trying to reach towards, and ultimately what the essence of essences that you are trying to unite with requires of you. Thank you for joining us. Look for Toronto Thelema on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Watch for events in the city. And join us again in the darkly splendid abodes.